You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Jennifer D. Klein, an author, speaker, facilitator, and coach. In this episode, we ask, what does good education look like if we place the student at the center of their learning? Jennifer outlines how she and co-author Capono Ciotti approached the development of their recent book, The Landscape Model of Learning by collaborating remotely during the pandemic, engaging with established and emerging educational theories, and gaining further insights through dialogue and conversations with teachers, school leaders, parents, and other stakeholders. Jennifer shares her thoughts on teacher professional development and the power of story, that is, an individual's authentic lived experience, and how this might shift how we think and feel about classroom practice. We explore the fundamentals of the landscape model of learning, including the use of metaphors. There's the ecosystem with an understanding of the context that each child brings to their learning, the horizon, where teachers co-construct with students with the aim of understanding student goals, aspirations, passions, and interests, and the pathway, where teachers use pedagogies that allow students to work on slightly different pathways so what they're doing feels personally relevant and appropriate to where they are in their learning journey. All going well, this encourages a student-centered classroom, ideally with students doing most of the thinking and talking in class. We also explore other metaphors sometimes used by educators, such as a racetrack, a dominant yet limited representation that fosters competition but fails to acknowledge the diverse needs of the learners within a typical class. Jennifer shares some ideas and practicalities of inclusive prosperity with every student prospering and thriving and every voice being valued and honoured, learning to value all the voices. We also chat about Jennifer's first book, The Global Education Guidebook, which seeks to humanise K-12 classrooms worldwide through equitable partnerships. Jennifer offers insights into the intersection of writing, improving education, and encouraging students to increase their influence and positive impact on the world. Here's my conversation with Jennifer D. Klein. So nice to see you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. All the way. We're in different time zones. So it's 7 a.m. where I am in Sydney, Australia. I am here in Denver, Colorado in the United States, and it is just after two in the afternoon. Very good. So before we get into some of our later topics of discussion, I want to find out uh, more about you, like maybe what did you study? What were your interests when you were growing up? Um, so take us back as far back as you you know deem appropriate. So what what can you tell us? 
Well, I can tell you, uh, I'll, I'll go back a little earlier than my higher education and just say I was always that child who had answers to questions that were not the answer that the teacher was looking for. Um, and I've always been that kid at, at heart, I think, even into my mid-50s now, uh, looking back, I've always been that person who sees things a little bit differently. So I have the uh, had the great advantage growing up of, of two creative parents who, though they were very classically educated themselves, um, really wanted to make sure that I was in schools that honored those different perspectives, those weird, if you will, ways of of seeing the world and seeing seeing the topics brought up in class. Um, and so I was sent in my early childhood to a lovely little uh, independent school outside of Philadelphia called the school in Rose Valley, um, where, you know, when I when I made an odd question, comment or odd, you know, is obviously a subjective term, but when I made an odd comment or um, uh, saw things rather differently, the instead of saying, that's not the answer I was looking for. The teachers would say something more like, ooh, what an interesting way to see it, Jennifer. Tell me more. You know, um, I have early memories in first grade of being assigned my first book report and confronting the teacher politely afterwards and saying, um, I, this seems like a really stupid thing to do because we all read the book together and, and there's already a summary on the back of the book. Why do I have to write a summary? And instead of sending me to the principal's office or disciplining me for seeing something different. She said, okay, what do you want to write about? Right. So I was, I was really fortunate to get to go to schools like that. When we moved to Colorado, when I was 10, I was put into the open school system here in Jefferson County, um, which was the second public alternative school uh, in the U S uh, and the focus was experiential project-based learning, though we didn't necessarily describe it as expeditionary and project-based. I spent a lot more of my learning growing up outside of the classroom uh, than inside the classroom and we described our school as one that had no walls where our our goal our job was to understand the world as it was but also to really try to create the world as it ought to be um and so uh, so I went to Bard College. I, I've been a writer, I think, since I was quite young. And in, in many ways, I, I was deeply inspired by the idea of being an author. Um, wrote my first short story in third grade about a frog who tried to cross the road and failed. Um, so clearly, my worldview has always been a little bit dark, too. But my interest in writing was always to help people understand that darkness in the human condition, if that makes sense, and to try to find a way towards something better. Uh, so I studied fiction. I went to Bard College um, for my bachelor's degree. I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder for my master's degree. In both of those degrees, I, I focused almost entirely on fiction writing. Um, but after my dissertation um, at the, or my, my thesis defense, I should say, at the master's level, realized that I had more to say than fiction could hold. Um, meaning that my opinions were coming through a little bit too directly. Uh, and so I ended up <laughs> I can, I can, shifting a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, somehow I, I can kind of imagine that just from the vibe, maybe. Yeah, just a little. People pick that up pretty quickly. Yeah. And I remember my thesis advisor saying, you know, you might just want to try some nonfiction for a while instead of trying to shroud it in in fiction. Go ahead and say what you mean. Uh, and that was actually really liberating, even though I was pretty pissed at him at the time. Um I ended up in the classroom uh, almost by accident, right? So I, I was in the classroom for 19 years total. A few years of that was at the University of Colorado Boulder while I was doing my master's. And then I moved to Costa Rica in 1994 and 
um, the job that I could find there was in an international school, right? Teaching high school English. And so I, I went into it thinking, well, maybe I know something about education from my own experiences and discovered quickly that I actually knew a lot about how to do it right because of the kind of education I had been given myself. Um, never looked back really that, that the students changed what I wanted to write about right? My experiences in education changed my topics. And, and I started to see education as a way to make the world a better place, um, uh, to, to empower young people to have a real impact on their environment. So, so I spent, you know, several years teaching in Costa Rica, lots of years teaching here in the Denver area as well. Um, in 2010, I left the classroom and started consulting and writing more full time. Um, my goal being to, to help to train teachers in new practices in inclusion and pedagogical shifts toward project-based learning and student-centered approaches, um, and to, to go out in the world and, and, and inspire those kinds of changings, both through my speaking and through my, my writing efforts. Um, and that pretty much brings us up to now. I guess the only other thing that I always want to make sure is mentioned on my bio is that I was a head of school uh, for three years in outside of Bogota, Colombia, a school that really wanted to shift toward project-based learning and which is frankly producing a lot of the next generation of entrepreneurs for Colombia. Um, so uh, yeah, a little bit of administrative experience and then the realization that I don't like actually managing schools and I would much rather be the creative who's off in the corner thinking and writing than the one who actually, you know, deals with the day-to-day -day of managing a school. Hmm. Gee, there's a lot packed in there. Yeah, there is a lot. <laughs> if we could go, just go back a little bit. When you uh -huh. first started teaching, what were some of the things, these things that you mentioned or thought of that you were already doing? That, like there's more for people that are not teachers in, who might be listening. What, uh -huh. what sort of things are you talking about? So I'm talking about strategies that I think we can use at home as parents as well, frankly. Um, they're, they're ideas, for example, um, one of the one of the shifts that were that I certainly encourage educators to make all the time is to shift away from us doing 80% of the talking and students doing 20% of the talking and flip it so that students are doing 80% of the thinking and talking and we're doing about 20%, which does require a lot more asking questions, uh, a lot more interest in what they have to say as opposed to just an interest in conveying our topics or our subject areas. Um, I knew automatically how to create a safe space for every student so that they had room to really form their identities in my classroom. Uh, but I was also simultaneously teaching them to write, right? So for example, we did a lot of journaling um, and journals were 100% private and students could take them home with them at the end of the day if they preferred not to have them sitting in the classroom. Um, we did a lot of writing that was about the literature that we were reading, but also about themselves and how those ideas in the literature connected to who they were and what they cared about and who they wanted to be, you know? Um, and so I think that was a lot of it initially it was just a good instinct for teenagers in particular. That was my right age group, right? Every educator finds their right age group, but that, you know, getting them outside the classroom, um, bringing expert voices in a lot of the elements of project-based learning were already at work in my classroom long before I had ever been taught that particular pedagogy. Um, and I always ended semesters with portfolios and things like that as well. Yep. 
Another another term that you mentioned a few times, which educators would be familiar with, but non-educators maybe they maybe have an idea of. What is project-based learning? <laughs> so great question. Yep, project-based learning has to do with uh, posing a, an authentic challenge to students, and they're coming up with solutions. And in the best of cases, students are even the ones to identify what the problem is, as well as identifying what the potential solution would be. Um, so that's you know, it's something that students do naturally when they're growing up. For example, if I'm trying to figure out if I'm ten years old and I'm trying to figure out how to climb this tree. Um, there's going to be a lot of trial and error. It's a very real, authentic challenge that I have to figure out how to overcome so that I don't fall and hurt myself. Um, same thing with a child who's trying to cross a river or get a paper boat to float on water. Um, you know, we do a lot of that kind of experimentation when we're young, um, but school rarely models after that, right? So project-based learning is an effort to bring that into the classroom. It's not an approach that ignores the, the standards or the academic goals, but the magic of it is when teachers learn to design projects that require their subject area in order to be successful. Right. So um, suddenly you have a, a group of students who actually really want to understand algebraic form formulas, for example, because they're trying to determine what would be a dignified wage. Um, for, for a family, right, in a given part of the world. There is a real challenge. Minimum wage doesn't always meet our needs, right? So using algebra in the service of this bigger challenge makes the, the subject more meaningful and also empowers the students as, as change makers. Yeah, yeah. And, and what about the role of li literature, say fiction? If you've got students, what, why would a teacher use, uh, you know, teach writing skills to students. What are the students going to do with those skills? Well, I, I certainly hope that they increase their influence in the world. And that's what I always used to say to my own students when I was trying to, in, you know, inspire them to do this writing work with me was that if you if you talk well, right, you, you will have opportunities like this podcast to share your ideas with the world, certainly. Um, but when you write well, your ideas also become indelible in the course of history. They become something that can be translated over and over, you know, um, a lot of potential uh, for for impact. So from my perspective, that was a big piece of it. And then of course, you know, career readiness, college readiness kinds of skills as well, right? To be able to do the kind of writing that would be asked for them in the course of their education and their careers. Yeah. So at some point during that this time that you're describing, you would have had the notion of of kind of getting some of these ideas down into something more a, a format like a book. Can you tell us like how that that first book of yours came about. And then we'll, well get into we'll get into the more of the detail of that. But just to kind of the almost like the context, how did it come about? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, to be honest with you, my so my first book is called The Global Education Guidebook. And I wrote uh, it was published in 2017. Um, and it was very much a an effort. How do I put this? I felt like I was getting the same questions over and over from teachers and all over the world. And it wasn't a bad thing that I was getting the same questions over and over, but I can only be in so many places at once. So in terms of influence and being able to offer those answers in a more um, 
sort of permanent and and easily shared way, um, writing was, I mean, of course, it was connected to my childhood dream too, of course, you know, of being an author. But a lot of what I was interested in was providing teachers with a, a guidebook, right? A tool that would allow them to build global partnerships for their classrooms um, as effectively as possible. Um, and of course, you know, as I said, it was connected to my, my urge to be a writer, to have an influence on education. Uh, at that point in my career, I was really focused in a lot of my work on global partnerships and the development of global and intercultural competencies. Um, and that work led pretty directly into my second book, which was much more focused on inclusion um, with elements of the interculturality um, embedded right in. Uh, for me, the intersection of writing and education is really, it's turned out to be my sweet spot, right? It's this wonderful way that I have an opportunity to help to improve education all over the world um, through these ideas that center on students and the real challenges of our times. Um, and so that dark worldview that I was describing earlier uh, in many ways has been, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's been erased, but I would say it's been softened by the knowledge that the work that I do makes a difference and that every individual teacher who I inspire to do things a little bit differently has then a more positive impact on the students and their environment. And even if we only positively impact, you know, a few students in the course of our lives, it still makes a difference. So that's what drives my work today. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you mentioned a word that we hear every now and again, inclusion. What is inclusion? Well, I'm, I want to give you a little bit of a background on the evolution of the words that we've used, at least in education, to describe this work, if that sounds okay. Um, so the, you know, the word, the term diversity is really where we started, but although a lot in a lot of cultures in the world, we use the term multiculturalism for a while, even before we use the term diversity. And the, the, the idea was that we were ensuring that we had the mix of identities in the classroom, that, that every community or environment or workplace um, had that diversity of, of, of identities, whether that was cultural, socioeconomic, religious, um, uh, any number any number of elements of identity. Um, we moved toward the word inclusion in part because diversity didn't give a whole lot of advice about what to do once we had it. It was just about having it, if that makes sense. Inclusion was a move forward. Um, and it suggests that all students or all identities in whatever context are included uh, in a meaningful way. So this is a term that signals equity um, or that should signal equity. Um, and the, the work that I was interested in was always, what did it look like to make sure that every student in the classroom really thrived, didn't just have access to learning, but really reached their own highest level of success, even if those levels of success were slightly, were as diverse as the students in the classroom themselves. Does that make sense? It does, but it, it sounds complicated in a way, Or, uh, but I, I feel as though it's probably not complicated, of like the two things at once maybe. I, I mean, what does this look like in in a situation? 
It, well, it looks differently in different situations, for sure. I, I think the the most important piece for me, there, there's actually something problematic about just using the term uh, inclusion. Um, and this is the reason why uh, my co-author and I actually ended up referring to it more consistently as inclusive prosperity in our work. Um, so inclusion, though it doesn't suggest that all students are being included, has this hidden danger, which is that it suggests that there's someone who has the power to include or not. It's a little bit like saying, I've built this house and I'll let you come in, which means that I still have the power to let you in or close the door in your face. And unfortunately, the people who have that power in education are generally the classroom teachers, right? So there's been a recent, over the last few years, there's been a bit of a pushback against that term inclusion, um, recognizing that um, it's not about somebody with power inviting everyone in or who they choose <laughs> to be in. Um, it's much more focused on this idea of every single student prospering and thriving. Um, and we can think of this in terms of a corporation as well, or any context, right, where, there, where humans are working together, where we want to be sure that every single voice gets heard um, and every single voice is valued and honored um, because every identity is is of value. Um, and this connects to, I, I know I'm getting big picture on you here a little bit, Mark, but <laughs> I would say it's important to say this, you know, the, the biological world thrives on diversity. And yet on a certain level, the human word, world has, has been challenged by it. Let's put it that way, right? So I would say, our, our very survival depends on learning to really value all of the voices at the table, whatever table that might be. Mm. That was probably a really complicated answer. But <laughs> well, I'm holding it. He's holding a shape in my mind. And then I guess it kind of does reflect the complexity of the world, uh, like out there, or, you know, the world itself type thing and the people in it. And I guess yeah. it's becoming more and more. Well, I don't know. I don't know where that was leading my my sentence. Um, so, what did what did you actually do with this sort of in this territory? You're kind of you're looking out at a situation and thinking, oh, okay, there's something that I could contribute or analyze or I don't know, research something mm -hmm. in that territory. What 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 sort of measures did you or actions even did you go and do to sort of um, find out more or, you know, do an audit or I don't know, I'm just sort of grabbing at ideas here. Well, this idea of access being a low standard to shoot for, right? This idea that just giving all students access to an education wasn't enough um, came out of a series of workshops and conversations that I had with uh, the man who turned into my co-author on the second book, um, and that's Kapono Siati. Um, he uh, has an incredible background in education, also in student-centered education, also has wonderful stories of getting to go to the happiest school on earth um, in, in Hawaii uh, growing up, um, and, and then also seeing all of the hurdles and obstacles to really doing right by students um, in, in reality within his own career. And he and I were both really struck by how consistently we were hearing wonderful educators say access was their goal rather than success for every single student and really, you know, ensuring every student thrived. Um, so Capono and I wrote this book together. We started with 
with um, writing, you know, a, a basic outline of our ideas, a proposal um, uh, for a press, you know, and, and connected with Solution Tree Press around that proposal. Um, we actually wrote the entire book. Um, without ever being in the same room, because we started the writing, uh, we started the proposal process in late 2020 uh, during the pandemic and did most of the writing in 2021. Um, we interviewed educators and thought leaders who are around the world who we believed were doing unique and important work. Um, we we had an incredible connection, for example, from with a man in India who is doing just extraordinary inclusion work supporting. Uh, uh, public schools. Um, we had, uh, you know, I we basically we used our networks to find these right people to talk to, and then of course we had our own ideas as well. Um, and we, in in our case, it was very practical. We split up the chapters, decided who was going to write which chapters, at least for the first draft, and then um, uh, made notes to each other about where we needed stories from each other. I think Capono and I are both, um, in essence, we're both story makers, storytellers and story makers. Um, and we uh, that I think that was the most joyful part for both of us, but also sometimes the, the saddest part, too, because we had um, in our own lives and in the stories that we heard from other educators, there were a lot of stories of students who were poorly um, served by the schools that they attended, um, where teachers made assumptions about who they were and what they were capable of that limited their potential rather than than creating a sort of limitless, you 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 build the, the life you want to have uh, kind of mentality. Um, so there were some painful parts of the process as well. Uh, I think we were both very honest in the writing process um, and we're fortunate to have a, a press that was excited about the kind of work we were doing. Hmm. So what, how many stories, like, are, are you, can you quantify? Is it hundreds of stories or dozens or how? Well, we did, we did about two dozen interviews overall, um, most of which made it into the final copy. Um, I don't know if I could quantify how many stories there really were in the end. I think it's, I really hope actually that the whole thing sort of reads as a story. You know, I, we, we certainly wove in lots of educational theory and research, and we, we were particularly interested in the ideas of thought leaders like um, Paulo Freire, um, uh, you know, a, a liberation theologist who, who offered us these ideas about the dangers of banking education, right? We can't assume. Wow, what does that mean? I don't and know what that so, means. It's a, it's a wonderful frame that he used in his writing in a, in a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. What he said was that most education functions very much like a bank where the student is empty, essentially, and the a teacher deposits knowledge into the brain of the child. <laughs> Basically, that's the banking method. And what he said in his work was that no one ever reaches their own uh, consciousness, real consciousness through an education like that. And they certainly never fight for their own liberation in an oppressive situation when all they've ever been taught is to accept the ideas of the dominant culture and the dominant theories that come through the teacher. Um, and instead, what he suggested was that education had to be based on dialogue um, and that it was much more about the teacher being a learner with their students than the teacher depositing information um, because it was much more about dialogue and praxis. Mm. You mentioned a few times stories. What what do you mean, these stories? Well, I think... I think there's an incredible power of the individual's real lived experience 
to motivate people to think differently. In fact, I actually am becoming increasingly convinced that it may be one of the only things that ever inspires us to change is really understanding someone else's uh, story and experience, lived experience. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the stories that we share early in the book is the story of Mae Jemison. And Dr. Mae Jemison is, was the first African-American woman, actually the first black female ever to enter space as a NASA um, uh, astronaut. Um, but when she was, and she started a a bunch of incredible foundations to support young women going into the sciences and particularly women of color in the sciences. But when Mae Jemison was five years old uh, in her kindergarten classroom, her teacher, uh, who was white, uh, her teacher asked the question about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they went around the room and said what they wanted to be. And when they reached little Mae Jemison, she said, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a scientist. And the teacher said, oh, no, sweetie, I think you mean a and that's a perfect example of the way that a teacher can really, perhaps accidentally, I hope it's accidental, right, um, but can have a really negative impact on a young person's educational prospects. Um, one of the stories that Capono shares is of a young man in special education um, who didn't recognize that he had any gifts at all to offer the world or to the, offer the family or his community until he was a senior in high school. And when I think about those kinds of stories, I mean, I think, I think telling those stories obviously is cathartic and helpful for the individual who shares them. But I also think those stories have a power to shift the way people think and feel because they shift how they feel. And this goes back to my original, you know, goals as a writer. I always wanted to be able to impact people emotionally because I recognized from an early age that the emotional impact had the potential for something very powerful and positive to come out of it. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you've introduced a whole range of really interesting ideas, but then, you know, I, my mind keeps going back to teachers in a classroom. And I mean, sometimes you need like a, a kind of scaffold or an approach or a strategy or an activity, something that's kind of, you know, to help help teachers along. So how, how do you go about that? What, what sort of ideas or kind of strategies have you come up with? Well, Capono and I were really interested in this idea of it. The, so the, the second book is called The Landscape Model of Learning. And the landscape model in itself is a shift of metaphors for educators, um, but it's also very practical. So I promise to get into the practical uh, piece as well. Um, most of education is designed very much like a racetrack in the sense that we have all of our students lined up at the same starting line at the beginning of the school year, usually by virtue of their age only. Um, and we have them all shooting for the same finish line 
also by virtue of their age. Um, but any educator knows, just like any parent knows, it's not the same pace. Not everybody is starting from the same point. Not everybody is reaching the same finish line. Not everyone is start is moving at the same pace through their learning. Um, and in fact, the racetrack, if it, if it were true, it would be incredibly efficient, but it's not true. And so um, teachers struggle all the time with how to make sure that they're teaching every single child effectively um, because you've got some kids who are stuck for a semester or a year or their entire educations. You've got other kids who are waiting um, at the at the finish line in five minutes, wa- wanting more, needing more, deserving more. Um, and you've got all those kids in the middle who are neither struggling nor e- excelling, right? So so the, the racetrack struck us as the, the worst metaphor possible, right? But the dominant metaphor uh, in education. Uh, and so the landscape model is an effort to really um, shift people's thinking. Uh, it's not necessarily a new take on education. It's just a new way of framing what good education could look like. So the idea is that the model has three elements. The first is uh, the ecosystem. And that's all about understanding the context that every child brings into their learning environment, all of the different lived experiences that they've had or not had. Um, you know, the, any kindergarten teacher will tell you the kids who never had preschool, within five minutes, they know exactly who those students are as compared to the students who did have preschool, right? It's a different starting point. Um, having access to books and reading and enrichment activities and you're growing up, but all of also all of those things that help to form your cognitive abilities, your cultural identity, um, all aspects of your identity, um, those are, are, are things we need to understand about students in order to be able to teach to who they actually are, as opposed to treating them like a mass, right? So this is very much about personal understanding understanding uh, and and really knowing our students well. The second uh, element is the horizon. And this is all about doing uh, co-construction of goals with students, um, making sure that we're aware of what their individual next best steps would be, uh, but also understanding their aspirations and the aspirations of their families and, and their interests and talents and passions so that we can really leverage those things in the classroom to keep kids motivated and to make sure that the learning feels purposeful and and important. Uh, And the final is the pathway. And the pathway is all about using pedagogies like project-based learning that allow us to have students working on slightly different pathways through the learning experience um, so that what they're doing feels personally relevant to them. Um, So even though we might all be working toward the same standards, you know, this group of students is going to do it this way, this group is going to do it another way, right, Um, so that we're meeting the needs of students. Um, and so th- really the model that we we offer a ton of really specific practical strategies for teachers for each of those elements. Um, and uh, and we also have a section of the book that's designed for teacher for leaders, pardon me, because leaders are going to need to reorganize schedules and 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 have the opportunity to rethink how they do assessment at, at, at the broad level, um, re- rethink how they group students um, for different courses and experiences so that we can leverage their their passions and interests even more. Yeah, that did come to mind, this idea that, you know, in order to implement this sort of any any kind of change or or alternative approach would require a degree of adjustment I guess that's the that's a simple way of saying it and so mm-hmm. what um what are your thoughts or you know what 
what can you tell us about this sort of that territory of of picking up a new approach? Like, because it sounds like it's kind of with all the benefits. Surely there must be either hesitation or it's a bit daunting or overwhelming. So how do how are leaders, school leaders, and even teachers placed within within all of that? Well, I think for the individual teacher, it might be easier than it is at the building level or the district level or the state or country level. You know, that's my guess. I mean, I think I've had teachers already reach out to me and say, oh, I've tried a few of your strategies and I'm already seeing results, right? Even something as simple as co-constructing goals and rubrics with their students has made a world of difference in their classes, right? So I think when you're talking, we, we designed the book with small steps in mind as much as with big leaps in mind, right? So we would love to envision whole schools, districts, you know, countries um, adopting this model. Um, but there are going to be some challenges, right? And and some of those challenges come from, um, from the, just the realities of the way we've built the system of school, right? Um, I was really fortunate, for example, to graduate from ungraded schools, um, and I got into college on the basis of 50 pages of narrative transcripts that I wrote about my own educational experiences in high school. Um, I didn't even take the SATs because I knew that they weren't going to show me off well. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, to imagine schools all over the world suddenly going gradeless and, and what would the universities do if nobody took any of those standardized tests? It's, that's mind blowing, right? It's a, that, that would be a major, major shift. I wouldn't say that every school is ready for it. I, I, you know, as a, a uh, kind of practicing Buddhist. I'm not a great at practicing anything, but um, I really believe in this idea of the middle path. I'm not sure that either extreme is going to serve many people. So leaders need to be thinking about how how to leverage all of the people in their community to make sure, for example, that every single student has a tr- deeply trusted adult who understands their context, who who even comes from the same context, ideally, um, who the students can see themselves reflected in. So a lot of it's about hiring. Uh, A lot of it is about um, really connecting inclusion work to the values of the school um, and the things that the school, you know, has always said were part of their mission and vision for education. Um, My new work uh, is very much focused on leaders who are confronting um, downright resistance to or opposition to the things that they're trying to do, um, which are, you know, in these cases where leaders are trying to um, do good practices, right? I, I had a, a conversation this morning with a leader at a school in in um, Idaho that's managed to let go of grades, right? Or was actually founded without grades. And that is the continued battle, if you will, that they have both with parents to some degree and with colleges to some degree to make sure that they don't have to give up this this vision of ungraded education. It doesn't mean it's unevaluated. It just means it doesn't have grades. uh, I had a converse, an incredible conversation with a superintendent um, in um, in Arizona who has been able to, just as an example, has been able to do project-based learning and culturally responsive education um, and even has universal bathrooms in a state where a lot of the laws are heading in the opposite direction. Um, 
uh, leaders in several schools in Latin America who are managing to do really extraordinary work around um, LGBTQ plus inclusion, even though they are in Catholic dominated Catholic cultures um, where there's a lot of resistance to those that kind of inclusion. So I think, you know, this is the focus of the new book that I'm working on now is really finding these courageous educators, these leaders who who are finding ways to 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 handle, to, to confront those kinds of challenges as they come up in that kind of opposition. I'm still looking for a school in Florida that's managing to teach all histories <laughs> in spite of laws against it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. These are really, really difficult times for leaders. Yeah. And it sounds like at the heart of this new project, you're still using this idea of story, this okay. getting, gathering stories from authentic people in an authentic context, what the what the, their challenges are, what's working for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a point at which theory doesn't serve us that well. I, there's a point to which it serves us very well, right? Because it allows us, using Paulo Freire as an example, right? His theories around banking versus dialogue education have informed a great deal of my work. I, that Those theories are incredibly important to me. But when I can see it in practice and when I can share it in practice in a way that brings it to life for the reader, something different happens. I mean, I really think it does uh, make a huge difference. And so several of these leaders now have also shared stories of, um, of the way that story has helped them as a strategy, has helped them to do the work they're trying to do. And I'll give you one particular example. This was the head of a school in, in I believe, Western Mexico, um, who had a family with a student who declared themselves transgender at four, um, four years old. Um, and so there were pretty strong responses from the other parents in that student's class. Suddenly this child is another gender. We're confused. This is against all of the values that we grew up with. Um, lots of very strong resistance. And one of the things that he was able to do was to bring in this, the, and the family offered to do it, right? They said, listen, let us share the story of our child. And they sat down with all these other families and the, the parents of this trans child just shared the story of their child growing up and the moments along the way when they understood what was happening and why and um and as parents shared their story of trying their best to support their child in in their growth and development the best they could and by the end of it the rest of the parents were kind of weeping and hugging them and saying, I, I understand now if this were my own child and I were seeing similar things and hearing similar things from this child growing up, I would, you're right, I would do the same, right? Um, and so I think, I think those, the, the, again, it goes back to that power of story, as you said, right? The re real cases, not just me saying, here's what I think is true, um, or reading tons and tons of, like, I, I, I enjoy the research piece, of course, but I don't think we create change just on the basis of the research and theory. I think that these conversations I'm getting to have with leaders are going to be the heart of this book, this new book, um, and that they should be um, because it's real practice. In this episode, I chatted with Jennifer D. Klein. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Jennifer's website, Principled Learning, and further details about the Landscape Model of Learning and the Global Education Guidebook. Thank you for listening. 
to Perspectives in Parryville.